Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of February 15th, 2024. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Mines celebrates 150th anniversary, opens Labriola Innovation District by Corinne Westerman for the Golden Transcript. A chocolate affair sweetens Old Town. Arvadans braved the snow in search of chocolate by Lillian Fuglet for the Arvada Press. Evergreen Fire Rescue approves master plan. Documents will guide agencies' growth for the next decade by Jane Reuter for the Canyon Courier. Lakewood Plumbing Service warns Jeffco residents to check their pipes in severe cold weather by Joe Davis for the Jeffco transcript and following up with various articles. Mind celebrates 150th anniversary, opens Labriola Innovation District by Corinne Westerman. Despite being one of the oldest universities in the state, Colorado School of Mines has a fresh look. On February 19th, the university hosted a 150th birthday party in conjunction with the ribbon cutting for the Labriola Innovation District. This kicks off a year of sesquicentennial celebrations as the university will incorporate its big anniversary into E-Days, Homecoming Week, and other annual events. Thousands of students, staff, and members and alumni packed the two-floor Labriola Innovation Hub to pick up commemorative mugs and t-shirts, say hello to mascot Blaster, eat some birthday cake, and see the new facilities. The district, which is behind the Mind Museum of Earth Science, houses several student project spaces, a metals shop, a wood shop, automotive garages, laboratories, classrooms, and other work areas. The celebration doubleheader truly showcased the university's past, present, and potential, as Mind's officials described, as ore diggers want to continue building a better world through their expertise, leadership, and determination. For more information on the university's sesquicentennial or the new Labriola Innovation District, visit campaign.minds.edu. A chocolate affair sweetens Old Town. Arvadans braved the snow in search of chocolate by Lillian Fuglet. Slush and sweet treats filled the streets of Old Town for this year's A Chocolate Affair event. Nearly 150 Arvadans braved the cold on February 3rd in search of chocolate as they attended the annual fundraiser for Ralston House, an organization that helps victims of child abuse. All proceeds from tickets to the event supported Ralston House's general fund. With over 15 participating businesses, Arvadans were able to walk around Old Town, picking up samples along the way. At each stop, participants swapped purchase tickets for chocolatey treats such as peppermint bark, hot chocolate, chocolate chip pancakes, and more. 
A chocolate affair has been hosted in the historic district for over 20 years, with the last 10 years being organized by Ralston House. Though the event was rain or shine, so snow had no impact on whether it was held or not, the weather did impact attendance. This year's chocolate affair saw around a third of last year's attendance, according to Jennifer Kemp's Ralston House's Special Events Associate. It's so funny, Kemp said, but the last few years, this time of February, has always been really nice. People are usually thrilled to get outside. Still, the event sold 2,700 tickets, a little under half of what the event was able to sell last year. Kemp said most of those tickets sold during the pre-sale. Last po- lamppost hearts were also on display throughout Old Town. Purchased by Arvadans, each heart features a short message to loved ones. Hearts were assembled and hung by Ralston House volunteers, bringing the Valentine's Day spirit to Arvada. Evergreen Fire and Rescue approves master plan. Document will guide agency's growth for the next decade. By Jane Reuter. The Evergreen Fire and Rescue Board recently approved the agency's master plan, a guiding document for the next decade. It will set up work sessions to decide which of the plan's recommendations to pursue and set a timeline for reaching those goals. EFR provides protection for nearly 26,000 residents over 120 square miles, operating out of eight stations. Among the new plan's recommendations, it also recommends merging the two organizations within EFR, the Evergreen Fire Protection District and Evergreen Volunteer Fire Department. The district is the governing body responsible for tax collection and delivering emergency services. The nonprofit volunteer fire department with 65 volunteers provides staffing for the district's fire suppression services and receives donations from the public. Quote, based on input from staff members from both organizations, there are issues between the two groups that include a feeling of mistrust, a lack of coordination and command and control. The report reads, it is time for both organizations to merge into a single organization to become Evergreen Fire and Rescue. The plan also recommends combining Station 1, which it described as, quote, functionally obsolete, and 4, which it said will, quote, require significant investments to remain viable, into a single facility. That would allow cross-staffing, improved working conditions, and the opportunity to expand services, it said. Station 1 is located at 4751 Highway 73 in downtown Evergreen. Station 4 is at 5411 Highway 73 south of Evergreen. Finally, the plan recommends EFR move toward a combination of paid staff and volunteer firefighters. Currently, EFR system uses paid staff for emergency medical services and volunteers for fire suppression and rescue services. The report recommends adding more paid staff to the fire rescue team. Weege said EFR will consider all the recommendations. Changes in volunteering. Finding volunteers has become increasingly difficult, he said. Quote, it's a national problem that's been going on for decades now, he said. Volunteerism has really dropped off because of the requirements necessary to do the job. It's not like it was 30 or 40 years ago. 
Our demographics are also changing, he continued. We've got an older community. Call volumes have also increased, putting greater demand on volunteers, and the level of risk and complexity of those calls has grown. Quote, Evergreen is a complex community, he said. We have big box stores, we have a stretch of highway that has high potential for hazmat and multi-vehicle accidents. We have two major high schools and the wildland threat. Nevertheless, the agency will maintain some volunteer staff into the future. You don't just drop the volunteers and go fully paid, Weege said. A combination of paid staff in the station, but volunteers covering the district and doing neighborhood responses is a very popular format. We'll still be mostly volunteer if we choose to go down that route. Next Steps California-based Matrix Consulting, which specializes in developing master plans for fire and EMS agencies, created the document for a fee of $58,500. With the document in hand, the board will hold a series of meetings to figure out next steps. Now it's up to us to do a deep dive into that and determine the direction we need to go, said Chief Mike Weege. We'll start building out a new strategic plan for the next three to five years based on some of those recommendations. The master plan is a guiding document, but its recommendations are not commands. Quote, we've had master plans in the past, Weech said. Some things in them got accomplished, some didn't. Things don't always work out the way you want them to. The 2001 master plan, for instance, included a recommendation to replace Station 1. Those plans are only now taking shape. In 2019, EFR purchased the former Evergreen Mountain Market property on Highway 73 as the future site for a new station. The space is leased to a liquor store until late 2025 when EFR plans to demolish the building and begin construction. It expects that building to be operational by 2027. Learn more about the EFR Master Plan at evergreenfirerescue.com. Liquid Plumbing Service warns Jeffco residents to check their pipes in severe cold weather. By Joe Davis. February is one of the coldest months of the year in Colorado, and Josh Ward, owner of Applewood Plumbing, Heating and Electric, urges Jeffco residents to continue checking their pipes for damage. The coldest days in Denver metro weather history occur in December, January, and February, according to the National Weather Service. Quotes. With an average winter temperature of 32.7 degrees in Denver, pipes are at a higher risk of freezing with increased chances of bursting, Ward said. When low temperatures in the teens are expected for extended periods of time, pipes are more susceptible to freezing. Once frozen, water's volume increases by 9%. When this occurs in a closed pipe, the pressure rises, causing the pipe to burst. The pipes that are most likely to freeze are in unheated areas such as attics, crawl spaces, and along outside walls. Ward warns that a pipe damage from the cold can lead to bigger problems and more damage to the home. Quote, water damage from a fractured pipe can result in issues such as ruined electrical systems, corroded plumbing, mold growth, and destroyed ceilings and walls, he said. Fortunately, there are ways to prevent, spot, and quickly treat the pipes to minimize damage until the professionals come out. 
Ward and his team at Applewood Plumbing, Heating, and Electric recommend the following measures to protect pipes during cold weather. Set the thermostat to at least 55 degrees. Keep the temperature consistent both during the day and night. Insulate pipes in unheated areas. This can also reduce heat loss and make water heating more efficient. Seal any air leaks. Using caulk or plaster can prevent cold air flow into the wall space. These leaks are most commonly found around pipes or electrical work. Let warm water drip. The best time to do this is at night because it will keep the water flowing and help prevent freezing overnight. Open cabinets under sinks or vanities. This will expose the pipes to warm air. There are a few signs to look for to determine if a pipe is frozen, such as icy patches or frost on exposed pipes, weak or no water flow, unwanted smell from a drain or faucet, and strange noises coming from the pipes. If a pipe does burst, follow these steps to reduce water damage. Shut off the main water valve immediately. This is where your water supply enters your house. Locate the pipe. If it is not obvious, check under sinks and colder areas of the home. Relieve any pressure. Open the faucet that is connected to the pipe. Call a plumber. When there is leaking water or ice coming from the pipe, it is best to call for professional assistance. Winter is not quite over, so take these steps to ensure that your pipes and your home stay intact until spring. For information about frozen pipes and home repairs, visit applewoodfixit.com. Colorado Deadlier for Pedestrians and Cyclists by Olivia Prinzel, The Colorado Sun. The number of pedestrians killed on Colorado streets reached an all-time high last year, painting a grim picture of traffic safety. A year after the state recorded the largest number of road deaths in more than four decades. While traffic deaths saw a slight dip last year, the picture isn't getting any brighter for those traveling by foot or bike. Data from the Colorado Department of Transportation shows the number of cyclist deaths jumped from by 33% last year up to 20, up from 15 in 2022, and the number of pedestrians killed on Colorado streets reached a new high. Colorado saw a significant uptick in pedestrian deaths in 2020 when 93 people were killed while walking along or across the state's streets, compared with 76 in 2019, and the number has continued to rise. Last year, at least 131 pedestrians were killed, an overwhelming majority of them at night. Quote, a lot of people died just moving from point A to point B, said Pete Piccolo, executive director of the advocacy group Bicycle Colorado. And it seems as though unless you're impacted by traffic violence, it's almost normalized. Quote, the fact that 12,982 people died in Colorado since 2002, going to school, going to work, going to the grocery store, it is really an unbelievable thing that we cannot figure out how to move around our communities without killing each other. Preliminary data shows that the last year, 712 people were killed on Colorado's roads, including 20 cyclists, 134 motorcyclists and scooter riders, and more than 300 drivers. In 2022, 764 people were killed in traffic crashes. 
The causes aren't easy to identify, and there are several theories to explain how driver and pedestrian behaviors, road design, and vehicle size all fit together. While rising pedestrian deaths match a nationwide trend, it isn't one that has occurred in other countries of comparable wealth, where pedestrian and cyclist deaths have generally been declining, not rising. The number of pedestrians killed by drivers in the U.S. has been climbing for more than a decade, and in 2022, they reached a 40-year high when more than 7,500 pedestrians were killed. The Colorado Sun parsed last year's data on traffic deaths and spoke to experts about the numbers. Here's what we found. More than two in three pedestrians were killed last year between sunset and sunrise. In Colorado, last year, 67% of pedestrians died while walking across or along the road in the dark. Data from CDOT shows. The data shows that of the people who died at night, 65 were in areas with streetlights and 16 were in areas that had no lights at all. Quote, a lot of times you'll have streetlights, but not necessarily a really visible crosswalk, said Annalise Van Bono, CDOT's bicycle and pedestrian planning coordinator. Since crash data from 2023 is still being evaluated, final data could vary. Officials expect the year's top total number to, of traffic crashes to represent a 5% decrease from 2022, a spokesperson said. The pedestrians who were killed included three people aged 10 and younger, and eight people between the ages of 11 and 20. More than three-quarters of the pedestrians killed were male, and all but one of the cyclists killed on Colorado's roads were male, preliminary data shows. Quote, men are overwhelmingly represented as both victims and offenders in traffic crashes, said Sam Cole, CDOT's safety communications manager. They tend to be young men. And what do we know about young men? They tend to be risk takers. Research also shows that more men tend to bike compared to women, and men could have the tendency to walk more often at night compared to women, Van Vono said. Cycling deaths are on the rise. After three consecutive years with an Without an increase in cyclist deaths, the number of people killed while riding a bike in Colorado jumped to 20 last year. Among the bicyclists killed in 2023 were 13-year-old Liam Stewart, who was struck by a car while riding his bike to his middle school in Littleton, and 17-year-old Magnus White, who was training for the upcoming World Championships in Scotland when he was struck near Boulder by a driver who fell asleep and drifted from her lane. Colorado's growing population could be contributing to the rise in traffic deaths with more people on foot, bike, electric scooters, and vehicles sharing the road, said Piccolo with Bicycle Colorado. Five times the number of cyclists died in 2023 compared with 2003, when three cyclists were killed. The state's population has also soared in the past two decades, with census data swelling to 5.8 million in 2023 from 4.5 million in 2003. We've got a lot more cars, a lot more people on bikes, a lot more people on foot and one-wheeled scooters within this essentially the same built environment, Piccolo said. 
Generally, data shows that more deaths happen in urban areas with more cars and bikes on the roads and more people walking or biking to public transportation and a higher number of commuters are killed compared to recreational riders, Piccolo said. But in the end, the deaths don't discriminate. It is everyone, Piccolo said of the demographics. At the end of the day, it is young and old. It is rural and urban. It is commuter and recreational rider. It has impacted everyone now. Lawmakers this year are considering two bills intended to make Colorado's roads safer for cyclists. It's currently illegal in Colorado to text and drive, but Senate Bill 65, also known as the hands-free bill, would ban all cell phone use while driving unless drivers are using a hands-free device. Current law only prohibits drivers under the age of 18 from using a cell phone while driving. Senate Bill 36 would provide transportation funding for bike lanes, pedestrian walkways, and crosswalk lighting, among other safety improvements, by imposing a small fee for each driver during registration in Colorado's 12 most populous counties, calculated based on a vehicle's weight. Senate Bill 65 has been introduced in prior years and failed to pass, Piccolo said. This is one public health crisis where we know what the solutions are, he said. So the challenge isn't figuring out what to do. The challenge is finding the will to implement them. The highest number of pedestrian deaths happened in urban, more populated areas. Denver saw the highest number of pedestrian fatalities with 24 followed by 15 in Adams County and 14 in El Paso County, data shows. Urban arterial roads are overwhelmingly the most dangerous for pedestrians because of the high speed of cars and the extended exposure for pedestrians before reaching the other side, Van Bono said. When you have to cross six or eight lanes of traffic, it just takes a longer time, she said. Arterial roads are designed similarly to highways, but with more cross streets and often have a limited number of crosswalks. Quote, if it's going to take you a quarter mile, half a mile to walk to the nearest crosswalk, you might just take your chances in traffic and try to dash across the road, Van Vono said. Strodes. While it's hard to pinpoint exactly what causes each crash, distracted driving is a growing concern, Colorado State Patrol Master Trooper Gary Cutler said. A recent report from the Schiller-Kessler Group, a Florida-based law group which used data from the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration, shows that Colorado has the highest number of pedestrian deaths occurring at intersections in the country. Of the 433 pedestrian deaths recorded in Colorado between 2017 and 2021, 138 were at intersections, accounting for nearly 32% of pedestrian deaths, data shows. Nationwide, pedestrian deaths occur at intersections 17% of the time, according to NHTSA data. Last year, Colorado State Patrol recorded 36 pedestrians, or bikers, who were struck but not necessarily killed. 25 of those crashes were a result of a driver failing to yield to a pedestrian at a crosswalk, and three collisions happened at a crosswalk where there were flashing lights, Cutler said. Three bikers were hit when a driver failed to yield to a cyclist in a bike lane. 
I believe we're just getting as a society that we're trying to push the limits of what we should be doing on the roadways and trying to get there faster and quicker. And it's not safe to do that, Cutler said. Smartphones and the distractions they offer both drivers and pedestrians could be playing a huge factor in traffic fatalities, especially in the U.S. where the ubiquity of automatic transmissions frees up a driver's hands for other uses. A CDOT survey in 2022 found that more than half of drivers in Colorado use their phone while driving. The New York Times reported that Americans spend nearly three times as much time interacting with their phones while driving compared to drivers in Britain. According to data collected by Cambridge Mobile Telematics, a company that tracks dangerous driving. The data showed that distracted driving in the U.S. detected when phones are tapped or in motion in vehicles traveling faster than nine miles per hour typically peaks in the evening hours, the Times reported. Experts say bigger cars on the road could also play a factor, though car sales have dramatically changed in the last few years. Quote, as cars have gotten bigger, longer, taller, heavier, they're hitting pedestrians and bicyclists with more force, Ben Bono said. The heavier a car is, the longer it takes to stop that car. Brakes are slower when you have a heavier vehicle and you have a lot of vehicles nowadays that have a very tall hood and instead of hitting a person at the leg or knee level it's hitting people in the chest in 2023 the most registered car in colorado was a ford f-150 followed by the chevrolet silverado two massive trucks with high front ends according to data from the division of motor vehicles the best-selling car nationwide in 1990 was a Honda Accord, a much smaller sedan. At the end of the day, when a car and a bike come into a conflict, it's the pedestrian who's going to lose, she said. A person in a car might be safe, but you might kill somebody. And I don't think anybody wants to be responsible for that. 226 people were killed in an impairment-related crash. Impairment-related crashes were down last year compared with 2022, but still, 226 people lost their lives. There's not a soul in the U.S. that doesn't know if you get behind the wheel while impaired that you could end up killing somebody. So getting behind the wheel, knowing that information is selfish, it's careless and reckless, Cutler said. A variety of factors could contribute in the dip to the dip in traffic fatalities in 2023, Cutler said, including increased technology in newer cars that remind drivers to fasten their seatbelts. Enforcement is also up, with a team of state troopers stationed in parts of the state to target impaired driving and various campaigns to warn against dangerous driving behaviors, including aggressive driving, he said. For safer roads... Drivers need to stop thinking about pedestrians and cyclists as an afterthought, Cole with CDOT said. We need a wholesale shift in the way drivers think about safety and sharing the road, Cole said. Too many people drive without a consideration to the increasing number of roadway users out there. This story was printed through a news sharing agreement with the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned Nonprofit based in Denver that covers the state. Local Voices, A Privileged Life, 
Jerry Fabianic, columnist. From climbing trees to heights to hitchhiking, risk-taking was part of my growing years. By the standards of my immigrant grandparents, though, my daring dues were hardly perilous. Nevertheless, I inherited that gene from them. Like they did, I migrated from the place of my birth in search of a better life. I found it in Colorado, despite being there being no guarantees that I would. I had a vague dream, a gut feeling, and an itch that needed to be scratched. Living with risk was a regular part of daily life for my grandparents from the day they launched themselves from 19th century Eastern Europe. Believing in the promise of America, they flocked to America in search of opportunities denied them in their native lands. Instead of amber waves of grain, however, the men found themselves eking out a subsistent existence as they burrowed into coal mines or baked in the steel mills of western Pennsylvania. The women valiantly toiled 24-7 in the squalor, scrubbing, cooking, sewing, and raising the children. My family story is one of thousands differentiated only by the particulars, one that is being reenacted today by others coming in search of better lives for themselves and their families. I remain in awe of their courage, forsaking all they've known and risking their lives so to get the blessings of liberty the preamble speaks of for themselves and their children. It is through that grandson of immigrants' perspective I view much of what is unfolding today. It is through the lens of a child of a blue-collar, skilled craftsman and a mother who, like her mother, had clawed out a borderline existence for her children after her husband and the family's breadwinner, my father, died, tragically, while she was carrying her 13th child. It is why I find substantive literary characters, real ones like Joe Rance in Boys in the Boat, and fictional like Seath in Beloved, and Tom Joad in Grapes of Wrath, heroic and dismissive of shallow, well-to-do characters like Daisy and Tom Buchanan in The Great Gatsby, who don't know what hard work is, have never sweated, baked, or froze trying to make a living, have never had their hands coarsened with blisters and calluses, and haven't experienced hunger, wondering if they could make rent, pay for their utilities, and buy groceries to feed their children, yet flaunt their wealth so to win the affections of the masses in an attempt to give substance and meaning to their vacuous lives. It is through the remembrance of brothers who fought for their country in Vietnam, and carried scars from the war the rest of their lives, one of them eaten up by cancer I'm convinced was initiated by Agent Orange. And it is from learning at an early age the physical, psychological, and emotional value of hard work and how to have fun sometimes with little more than a can to kick. It's the reason I feel sad for youth encumbered in ways that I wasn't prevent that I wasn't that prevent them from escaping and rising above their plights. For children who don't frolic in snow, splash barefoot through mud puddles, or get dirty and bruised while playing in carefree, outdoor, disorganized activities. And for the myopic ones who cope with their boredom by scrolling through phone apps, checking out social media, and obsessively playing video games. Those and other life experiences are among the reasons I offer gratitude for the privileged life I've had. In America... 
Neil Diamond belts out a tribute to all those who have to con- have and continue to do what my and possibly your ancestors did. The music pulses with an energy that conveys a sense for me what it might have felt like for my grandfather Ignac, when at age 21 he first saw the shores of America from the rails of a ship and stepped ashore knowing he made it, but not knowing that 14 years later he would die by having his skull crushed in a grimy factory, leaving behind a wife and six children. Thanks to my intrepid immigrant parents and my steely, imperturbable parents, I was given a head start in life. And once I struck out on my own, I didn't, couldn't have, done it alone. Like everyone else, I had guides, mentors, and plenty of helping hands along the way. I haven't lived a privileged life in the highbrow socioeconomic sense. Far from it. But I have led one in a more meaningful way. It's merely a matter of perspective. Jerry Fabianic is the author of Sisyphus Winds and Food for Thought, Essays on Mind and Spirit. He lives in Georgetown. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Thank you for joining us for your Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite, I'll be reading... Meet Us on Bubble Tea Row by Isaac Vargas. And Remember When Denver Voted for a Sidewalk Fee? The Policies Being Tweaked by Kyle Harris. From Westward, I'll be reading Former Mayor John Hickenlooper Urges Mike Johnston to Keep Up the Fight for Federal Migrant Support by Benito L. Kelty. And Premium Reserve Parking? Here are 10 more upscale amenities Denver Airport could offer by Teague Bolin. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These first two articles are from Denverite. Meet Us on Bubble Tea Row by Isaac Vargas. Purple Pastel Taro Slush, a popular bubble tea blend made from the Southeast Asian root vegetable, is a nutty vanilla-flavored refreshment served at Denver's Tea Street It's one of the popular offerings of shop owners and siblings Victoria and Patrick Lamb. Seated around a syrup-brown traditional tea ceremony table brought in from Taiwan, the duo reflect on five years of their bubble tea business. I am most proud that we've built a community here, Patrick said. Denver's bubble tea row has popped up along Colorado Boulevard, a busy and often chaotic roadway hugging neighborhoods like Belcaro and University Park and home to eight businesses carrying the popular tea-based drinks on their menus. Tea Street Denver is set to open its second location in Parker this spring, expanding its reach and building on the vision that the Lamb siblings sought out to do when they first opened their shop in 2019. Pulling from their experiences abroad and at home as third cultural culture Asian Americans, the duo have carefully curated a space and a menu that celebrates the intersection of their ethnic identities. I could literally walk outside of my dorm room and there were five mom-and-pop bow and tea places within a block of each other, Victoria said, reflecting on her study abroad experience in Taiwan. I had this yearning to learn more about who I am and who we are as a family. Bubble tea is a means for us to connect with our heritage, Patrick said. I've learned that I am very much so Asian American. The two have amassed a crowd of regular customers, 
primarily millennials stopping by for an early morning post-meal savory boba beverage. T Street joined a growing list of boba neighbors along the street just before the pandemic. An alum of the Denver University of Denver, Victoria frequently visited Lollicup Denver down the street with a group of friends. It makes me feel like there's more Asians, says Venice Yuan, founder and owner of Lollicup Denver. First opening the shop in 2003, Yuan was one of the first bubble tea owners along this strip of Denver. Dishing out popular holiday-themed drinks, Lollicup has been a hub for nearby college, high school, and middle school students. Immigrating from China to Korea and then to Denver, Yuan has seen more and more competing shops along Colorado Boulevard over the years. It's fun, but it's also very challenging, Yuan said. Ding Tea is a global bubble tea franchise originally founded in 2004 with two locations in Colorado, one in Fort Collins and another in Denver. Owner Cindy Wynn opened the Denver branch in in July of 2019 and has seen just how much the city has grown, particularly its interest in boba. When you crave boba, it's almost every corner now, Wynn said. Kids want to spend time with their family, go to the movies, go to a boba shop. It's just like a spot to hang out. T Street Parker will offer the same offerings and drinks with an added focus on dumplings. Guests will be able to look into a dumpling showroom and watch a dumpling machine make about 1,000 dumplings an hour. Victoria and Patrick are excited to take their vision to other parts of the state too. It's our chance to take what we've done here, what we've learned here, and take it to the next level, Patrick said. Remember when Denver voted for a sidewalk fee? The policies being tweaked by Kyle Harris. More than a year has passed since Denver voters decided to charge property owners a fee to pay for much-needed sidewalk improvements. But if you've looked around, you'll notice the sidewalks aren't looking better, and you might be wondering what's going on with that thing you voted for or against. It turns out, quite a lot of process. Denver's Department of Transportation and Infrastructure formed a committee to review and refine Sidewalk Ordinance 307, according to a statement from the agency. The group has been meeting twice a month since August to hammer out the finer details of the ordinance. Now, the committee is proposing three big changes to the ordinance to address community concerns over high fee assessments and how they might affect lower-income homeowners, how the measure conforms to the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, TABOR, and to make sure DOTI can implement a working program to build, fix, and repair sidewalks throughout the city. I'm proud of the hard work the committee has done to develop recommendations that refine the sidewalk ordinance and details of implementation and that honor the will of the voters, says Jill Locantor, committee chair and executive director of the Denver Streets Partnership. Here's what's proposed. The first change is massive. The original ordinance assessed fees based on the linear foot of the property frontage on both residential and commercial property owners. That frustrated residents who lived on corner lots who were disproportionately charged. The proposed change, only affecting homeowners, not commercial property owners, would instead create a standard annual fee per resident that would vary based on what sort of home they lived in. Single-family home dwellers and people living in a multifamily home and a single residence, 
that takes up an entire parcel would pay $148.64 per unit. While people living in multifamily buildings with two or more units on a parcel would pay just $27.83 per unit. For all other properties, the committee recommends keeping the sidewalk fee per linear foot of property frontage, the city noted online. The second change to the ordinance would be that in the original text, people living in neighborhoods identified as under-resourced by the city's Neighborhood Equity and Stabilization, NEST, would be eligible for a 20% discount. That would be scrapped. Instead, people in income-restricted properties, where at least 25% of the residential units are available only to low-income households, would receive an automatic 20% discount. Property owners who apply and income qualify could receive additional discounts based on income. The way those discounts would be doled out would be similar to Denver Solid Waste's recycling and trash service rebate. The timeline would also be hedged. The original ordinance states the work would need to be completed within nine years. The proposed tweak would state the work needs to be complete within nine years of the effective date of this section, or as soon thereafter as determined feasible by the manager of transportation and infrastructure. City analysis suggested the work could take upwards of 30 years. The ordinance would also need to specify that the initial capital investment plan should prioritize the repair or reconstruction of all existing sidewalks that are in severe disrepair that represent a safety hazard or which do not minimally comply with legally mandated accessibility standards. Love it? Hate it? The city is asking residents to give their feedback about the changes through a survey. Responses are due Thursday, February 27th. After community members weigh in over the coming weeks, the committee encourages Denver City Council to adopt the final recommended changes swiftly to avoid further delays in the implementation of the program, Lokentor said. The following articles are from Westward. Former Mayor John Hickenlooper urges Mike Johnston to keep up the fight for federal migrant support by Benito L. Kelty. Senator John Hickenlooper got his political start as mayor of Denver, and while he doesn't imagine that Mike Johnston is fast with his fists, he's encouraging the Mile High City's current mayor to keep fighting to get federal support for the migrant crisis. He might be a little too skinny to be intimidating when he's got his fists clenched, Hickenlooper says, but he's doing the heavy lifting. Every mayor around you is dealing with the same situation. It doesn't matter what community you're in, but Denver has had the bulk. Hickenlooper shared his thoughts on the job that Denver's mayor is doing handling the migrant crisis after a roundtable discussion with metro area community members who have been helping migrants find clothes, work, and food, including Andrea Ryall of Highland Mommies, Mateus Alvarez of the Dayton Day Labor Center in Aurora, and Maria Detterman with Same Cafe. More than 38,000 migrants have arrived in the city of Denver since December of 2022. Johnston predicts that the city will need to spend upwards of $180 million this year to continue handling the flood. Despite Johnston lobbying for support in Washington, D.C., the U.S. Senate killed a bipartisan border security deal that would have allocated $1.4 billion to local migrant support programs. 
As a result, Johnston announced $5 million in budget cuts on February 9th, starting with reductions at the Denver Motor Vehicles Division and the Department of Parks and Recreation. The citizens throughout Metro Denver are going to see their budgets cut. Their rec center is going to be closed down earlier. That's unacceptable, Hickenlooper says. This is largely a federal problem, and they can't expect the local communities to go to the forefront. The federal government has to step up now. Hickenlooper had met with Johnston before the roundtable and came away from the meeting confident that Johnston would find $180 million to get the budget back in shape and deal with the thousands and thousands of individuals who are here, Hickenlooper told reporters. He also said that he's hopeful that the feds will come up with some kind of authorization that will allow migrants to work, though no bill has yet been introduced. Hickenlooper had put out his own call for immigration reform on February 8th, after the border security bill died. We need a stable, legal, and fair workforce, or else our economy will collapse without immigration labor, he said in a statement that day. We're just kicking the can down the road. If we only seek to restrict legal pathways into this country, then the few that remain available will always be overwhelmed. We need an immigration system that isn't so dysfunctional that families have to risk their lives with cartels and desert crossings to seek a better life. Even though Denver residents won't be happy with the budget cuts to help cover the cost of dealing with migrants, Hickenlooper says that Johnston is a good mayor who is doing what needs to be done for the city. He is completely focused on the city, and that's where his primary focus has been and has to be. Hickenlooper adds, he's got a plan for the reality he's in right now, he says. He's serious. He's doing exactly what he has to do. He has to make those cuts, make sure that the budget doesn't get turned upside down because of this once-in-a-century massive crisis. But at the same time, he has to be fighting for the future. Hickenlooper was the mayor of Denver from 2003 to 2011. He left office to run for governor of Colorado. Term limited in that office, he made a brief run for the presidency, then dropped out and ran for the U.S. Senate. Johnston, who'd announced that he was running for the same U.S. Senate seat in 2019, dropped out of the race shortly after Hickenlooper got in. He announced that he was running for mayor in late 2022. Part of Johnston's fight for Denver will mean coming out to Washington every six weeks and swinging his fists. Hickenlooper says, and even if he fails, you go back and you work at it again. Johnston has visited D.C. twice during the past four months to plead for federal support. His first trip, along with other mayors, was November 1st through 2nd, when he met with congressional delegations, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, and other key federal leaders. He returned January 15th through the 18th for the U.S. Conference of Mayors, a nonpartisan network of cities with more than 30,000 residents. It was time well spent for the benefit of Denver, Hickenlooper says. I know from when I was mayor that getting mayors to work together is a very powerful tool, and it can have a big role in dealing with this crisis. He's already respected at the U.S. Conference of Mayors, Hickenlooper adds. 
He's already held up as someone who's taken a very difficult situation in organizing other mayors to say collectively that we can take action to make a difference. More migrants have come through Denver in the last year than anywhere else in the U.S. except for New York City, Hickenlooper says. And on a per capita basis, they've had three times the number New York has. Despite the overwhelming number of migrants coming into the city, Denver hasn't been crying into their handkerchiefs, Hickenlooper concludes. They're bringing the community together, gathering resources up, figuring out solutions to the housing issue, finding food, and trying to figure out some way they can get jobs. While Denver is dealing with the current crisis, Hickenlooper notes that migration will be a major cause for the next 50 years. There's more migration going on right now than ever in the history of the world. Economic inequality, climate change, political disruption, that's happening all over the world. People are going to migrate. Premium reserve parking? Here are 10 more upscale amenities Denver Airport could offer by Teague Bolin. Denver International Airport keeps making moves, even though travelers may find themselves stalled by train maintenance or glitchy scanners in the new West security in the meantime. In a twist on Frontier and other airlines with endless add-ons, DIA is introducing a series series of high-end services. This week, for example, the airport announced a new feature, premium reserve parking. DIA calls it an innovative service, but it's essentially just letting you pay a lot more for a really good parking spot and doing away with what used to be valet. For $50 a day, travelers can now reserve a rock star parking space on the fourth level anywhere from 90 days in advance to only five minutes out by visiting the parking page on the Fly Denver website. At DEN, we are constantly striving to improve the travel experience for our passengers, said CEO Phil Washington in announcing the new service. Premium reserve parking offers a seamless and efficient parking solution, allowing travelers to focus on their trip without the added stress of finding parking. What Washington didn't say was that the new program saves the airport money, since it doesn't have to pay valet guys anymore, much less pay for their liability insurance that covers being temporarily responsible for the safety of someone else's fancy whip. And it's also another move toward the segregation of the traveling population. Last fall, the airport introduced the new Sky Squad offerings, which let you pay for a chaperone to meet you, carry your luggage, watch that luggage for you while you freshen up, and see you to the gate like your grandma used to be able to do when you visit her back in the day. Sky Squad touts its service with the motto, That First Class Feeling, and DIA is up for more of that classy action. So, what else could the airport do to enhance its white glove service? Here are a few ideas, and in DIA, if you want to use any of these, you certainly may, you know, for a price. Layover Cabanas It's Kardashian-level hoity-toitiness in the middle of a public airport, a private spot with a sleeping area, luxurious lotions to moisturize your skin, a bowl of fresh fruit, and another of unsalted almonds, an overhead-mounted television that plays one of the three standards of modern film, any Marvel movie, any tearjerker, or the entire oeuvre of Wes Anderson. Rentable by the hour or overnight, 
Should a flight cancellation or weather emergency require it? Move over, Weston. Shower suites. Ideally, these would be situated right next to the layover cabanas and might be offered as a package deal. These suites would be entirely private, of course, with a dressing room and bathroom with a private toilet complete with bidet. The titular shower would be spacious, with a rainfall head at both ends. There would also be a huge bathtub for soaking away the stresses of travel with Mr. Bubble. A towel boy would be extra. Russian massages. These seem to be all the rage right now, at least on the reality TV of Lifetime and Bravo. Everyone wants to get mostly naked and repeatedly beaten by Slavic women wielding branches. It's a thing. The airport could even partner with a local spa, like Ibza, to provide a traditional banya-level experience for people who want to release toxins and are tired of goat yoga, which is so 2022. Buffets. If the airport takes the above suggestions and has sleeping and hygiene covered, all that's left is fine dining. And we, when we say buffets, we're not talking about some supermarket-sized Chinese place or Golden Corral. We're thinking Caesar's Palace, not Circus Circus. You know, caviar and crab legs and market price items for people who don't look at prices and are only concerned with a different sort of market. Private trains. One of the perks of DIA when it opened has become a negative, unless we're flying from Concourse A, we're required to pile into a mass transit vehicle of questionable reliability in order to get to our gate. Assuming this remains necessary, and the next suggestion might negate the need for the well-heeled to hop on trains, DIA could offer single-car experiences for those not wanting to mix with the rabble. There are already two sides to the boarding area, so one side could be for first class and the other for cattle cars. Probably want to call those something else, though. Moo. Champagne limo rides directly to the tarmac. If DIA wants to jump ahead of the private train option, it could procure some town cars and limousines and simply drive those travelers more financially worthy of attention directly to their flight. All those valets are now looking for work, remember? Just like in the old movies, passengers would board via stairs leading from the tarmac to the plane, or, more likely, an escalator, so their legs would be saved from more strenuous activity. Throwback flights. Speaking of the old ways to fly, the upper classes tend to highly value appearance. They themselves are often dressed up, even when they're dressing down. Cuccinelli drawstring sweatpants, Keaton tracksuits, that sort of thing. But for those desiring a more cultured experience in the air, DIA could sponsor throwback flights, where all the seats are roomy and two-by-two instead of three-by-three, where food and drinks are served without mention of cost, where there are footrests and generous tray tables and beautiful, and for some reason, Swedish, attendants who invite everyone to fly me. Yes, national airlines really ran ads with those messages back in the days when sexual impropriety wasn't such a big frickin' deal. Child-free flights. Maybe all you really want is to travel without wanting to throttle an infant who won't stop wailing. DIA could sponsor flights guaranteed to be child-free, 
if you're not of drinking age, you're not allowed on board. At this higher price point, the drinks would be free, and there'd be no need to worry about carting anyone, at least not once you're aboard. Admittedly, the program would do nothing to prevent imposition by those adults who are still mentally and emotionally juvenile, but hell, it's a step. A Destination Experience Clearly, if Denver International Airport institutes these ideas, it will rival the all-inclusive resorts that people pay big money to go to. So why not import a virtual reality suite that, so that would-be travelers can experience the surf, the slopes, the sand, or safari? Just come to Denver International Airport, and you don't need to travel farther at all to really go places. Special Delivery Denver has just four bike messengers left, including a North American champion by Katie Cheshire. Matt Sanchez got the call to deliver a cake to a hospital to celebrate the birth of a baby. When he arrived at the bakery, it was clear the bakers had no idea that the elaborate cake they put so much time into would be transported by a bike messenger. For his part, Sanchez had no idea the cake would be so big or expensive. It was one of the scariest loads I ever got. I had to do a $400 cake in rush hour traffic, Sanchez recalls. I had to look at this and problem solve in real time and figure out how am I going to keep this thing level. He managed, though, and delivered the cake safely to the new parents, but not without a lot of stress and pothole dodging. Still, it was all in a day's work for a champion bike messenger. Twenty years ago, there were dozens of bike messengers working in Denver, delivering everything from million-dollar checks to sandwich orders. But gone are the days when they'd gather at a bar at the end of a long day, swapping stories. Today, Sanchez, Jesus Mania, Antonio Hanifer, and Max Cass are the only four bike messengers remaining in the Mile High City. Sanchez mainly does food delivery for Jimmy John's, while the other three focus on delivering paper, the more traditional role of a courier. Before the pandemic, there were at least 15 of us, says 31-year-old Mena. In the early 2000s, there were like 50 guys here, and they were all for different companies. In the 90s, at one point, I was told there was over 100 guys. Mena works for Quicksilver Express Courier, which does work in six states. The company used to have a crew of 10 bike messengers in Denver. Now there's only enough work for him. I have to literally run all of Denver, like the whole damn thing, Mena says. I don't know what the mileage is. I really haven't put that much thought into it, because I honestly don't want to know. After being laid off briefly during the pandemic, when few people were working in downtown offices and everything that could be sent digitally was, Mena is just grateful he's able to work as a courier. There's still a place for messengers, he says, just a smaller place than before. The people that are left are just so dedicated, says Sanchez. We just love it. I mean, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. There's still a very big need for handoff deliveries where you need to go to a law firm and get a straight-up hard signature from somebody, adds Cass, who works for Denver Boulder Couriers and has been on the job for a decade. All the old-school attorneys downtown and old-school secretaries that have been downtown for a long time, they know exactly what we're doing. 
Having a trustworthy person to handle key documents and command attention can be much more effective than an email. I don't like serving people papers, Cass admits, adding that he was once held at gunpoint when he served papers to a person who, owned chi- who owed child support and wasn't happy 